New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. In order to cheer up old people, we've all heard or even said the phrase, even if you're old, you can still be young at heart. Hiding inside this well-meaning phrase is a deep cultural assumption that old is bad and young is good. What's wrong with being old at heart? I'd like to know. Old at heart, doesn't it have a beautiful ring? Wouldn't you like to be loved by people whose hearts have practiced loving for a long time? We are in the stage we're in. Let's not think of ourselves as has-been young people or as about-to-be-dead people. These are the words of our guest today, Susan Moon. Susan Moon is a writer and Zen Buddhist who teaches popular writing workshops, mostly in California. She is the former editor of Turning Wheel, the Journal of Socially Engaged Buddhism, and the author of the satirical cult classic, The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi. She has also written Not Turning Away, The Practice of Engaged Buddhism, and This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. Join us for the next hour as we explore the body, mind, and spirit of aging with our guest, Susan Moon. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Susan, welcome. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Um, this, I, I love the book. Uh, it has a lot of humor and uh, a lot of really poignant parts. And I, I, I would love to talk about, first of all, what are those first signs of aging that you noticed when you started to enter into your seventh decade? Well, uh, they probably vary a lot from one person to the next, but I think it was two things that got me the most. One, my knees. Well, that's one. Those are two things right there. And then two knees. And then a third thing, uh, increasing problems with memory. Uh, not really debilitating, but um, forgetting more and more things that I thought I should be remembering. Well, hasn't that isn't that the truth? I mean, we're both in our sixties, and, and is that is that right? That's right. You're, That's you're right. in your sixties, and I'm in my sixties, and and so often I find myself walking into a room, and knowing I I had a purpose, and it just flies away. You know, we call it the senior moment. Yes, you know, it's amazing. Have you have you had that? I've had it with increasing frequency. <laughs> yes, and I'm trying to learn to appreciate it in some way. 
So when in appreciating it, how how do we how do we appreciate it? What you have a lot of humor in your book and a lot of uh, fun in your book as well as a lot of seriousness. So tell me, how do how do you cope with that? Well, as far as senior moments go, I really think that in a way it's an opportunity to just be present in the present moment. If you can't f- remember what you were what you were aiming for and where you just came from, at least you can stop and say, okay, here I am. I One thing I know, I'm right here standing in this kitchen with this pair of scissors in my hand, and I don't know why I have it and where I thought it was going, but um, I'll just take a deep breath and enjoy the day. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That uh, You've also been a practicing um, Zen practitioner, practicing meditation in Zazen style, and you write about how you could when you can no longer sit in the lotus position. So talk about that. How how was that for you? Yeah, at a certain point I had to elevate myself up from the floor and sit in a chair and sit meditation in a chair. And it's very, very iconic to sit Buddhist meditation in a cross-legged position on the floor, just as all the Buddhist statues do, and as Buddha did, and and we're so accustomed to that image of Buddha sitting under the tree with his legs in full lotus position. Well, I never sat in full lotus, but I sat in half lotus quite happily for years. Um, and it's nice and stable sitting on the floor, but I just couldn't do it anymore. My knees were really giving out on me, and the knee doctor was horrified to hear I was still trying to do that. And so I moved up into a chair, and in a funny way, it was it was a lot more comfortable, but it was a little harder at first to meditate in a chair because I didn't have the feeling that I was doing anything different from what I usually do. I wasn't meditating. I was just sitting in a chair. But um, actually, meditating doesn't need to be different from anything else you usually do anyway. And I've gotten... Um, I think it's very important to really honor our bodies and honor what we're going through. And and if we want to have a meditation practice, to do it in a way that really works for us and not pretend we're somebody else or pretend we're younger than we are or that we have a different pair of knees. So I felt that I was really honoring my practice by sitting in a chair. When it, when you did, did you feel separated from the people on the floor? How, how did you, when well, you first did that? Well, there was a little bit of a feeling about that, uh, and it depends on where you go and which community you're sitting in. But um, at San Francisco Zen Center, where I have sometimes sat, um, and I sat at a retreat there one time not too many, just a couple of years ago, I was the only person sitting in a chair. There were probably 30 people or so in the retreat, and a number of them were older than me. And I thought, well, hmm, maybe I'm just the wimpiest person here. I don't know what the explanation is. But um, I felt a little self-conscious about it, but I also just felt that it was important to model doing what I needed to do for myself. And in other settings where where I practice more normally, I, I'm not the only person in a chair at all. And in fact, as the years go by and as the people in the community get older and older and uh, not so many young people are joining up. There are more and more and more people sitting in chairs. So, so they're they're starting to join the group. Yeah. You your your group here. Uh, you know you you've divided your book into three parts. The first part, mind body. The second part, changing relationships. And the third part is about the spirit. And um, we talked about a little bit about forgetfulness and that and. Um, 
What about when, and you write about this, that we start to worry about those genetic things that might come upon us, those things that maybe our parents or our grandparents suffered from, whether it's um, heart attacks or strokes, or in your case, you write about um, detached retina. And so did you, do, do you start to think about that more as we get older? Yes, well, I think it is natural to do so. And I suppose when up to a point, it's sensible to pay attention to the things you need to pay attention to. Um, but of course, worrying about something that hasn't happened yet doesn't help very much. It's just good to make preparations. And I was a little concerned about my eyes and my eyesight since my father went blind from detached retina in both eyes. And so it was good that I knew about it and knew the warning signs. And I did, in fact, have a retinal detachment a couple of years ago, which I was able to have fixed surgically very quickly. And I was extremely grateful. I had access to more technology than my father did, and I don't know if his sight could have been saved, but I think it's good to pay attention. You describe a very—it wasn't so funny at the time, but the way you describe it, uh, uh, being lost uh, finding chickens in a, a snowstorm. You, can, you, can you tell us that story? Oh, well, that's just a story about um, being grateful for eyesight, um, but I was—yes, I was with some other people— in the Adirondacks in a winter snowstorm. Well, it was actually a fall snowstorm, and we were trying to put the chickens away and get them into the chicken coop before they froze to death. And I wasn't being very helpful because I didn't have a flashlight and I couldn't get down on my knees and catch the chickens. So I decided to walk back to the house, and it was dark, and there was this terrible storm happening, and there was thunder and lightning as well as snow. And I lost my way on the road, and then I couldn't find my way back to the house because the electricity went out, and I had been following the lights of the house through the woods. And so I had this moment of, oh my gosh, what if, this is what it is like to be blind, and I'm glad I'm not usually blind, and I hope I find my way back to the house before I freeze to death here. So it all worked out fine, and there was, I saw candles lit in the house, and then I found my way. And, and you were talking about it was a good thing that you were facing the right direction yes, to see those candles. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk about falls. Um, I, I had a really bad fall recently. It was pretty scary. Mm. I was at the post office, and I, I did have a hold of the railing, which was a good thing. And uh, my my shoe caught, and oh. I just went down these granite oh steps. My gosh. I mean, really hard. But the the miracle of it was that because I had a hold of the railing, uh, I t it turned my body so I was more parallel to the steps rather than head first. Oh! Even though I did hit my head oh my at gosh. the end, uh, and they called rescue squad, and but I was fine. I was just bruised, nothing mm -hmm. broken. But it just reminds us that you you have um, a very very. Um, you write, um, my body used to take care of ordinary things like walking on its own without adult supervision. Now I have to think about picking up my feet. <laughs> <laughs> and that is something. Yeah. I mean, rails and, yeah. and, and staircase uh, rails yeah. or, or anything are very helpful now. Yeah. Really, it's true. And also, it's an example of how aging is a good chance for more and more mindfulness practice. You just need to be present and notice if there's a pothole ahead of you or whatever. But it is very disorienting and frightening to, to lose your balance. 
I, I think in my case, balance seems to be a huge part of it. And I actually have been doing much better lately. And I ascribe that partly to the fact that I've been practicing my balance and my way of practicing is that I, when I brush my teeth in the morning, I have an electric toothbrush that lasts for two minutes and I stand on one foot while I'm brushing my teeth. And it's surprisingly difficult to stand on one foot for two whole minutes without losing your balance. And at first I had some trouble doing it. And I stand on my left foot on the odd days and I stand on my right foot on the even days. And now I can do it quite easily. And I think it's actually helped to keep me from falling down steps quite as often. I haven't fallen for a long time. That's a great idea when I read that, and I thought, that now I'm going to have to try that. Now, when you first did it, it you couldn't stand on one foot do it for, for the two, whole two minutes. No, I couldn't. So I, it took some practice. It took some practice, and it was very encouraging to see that practice improved my balance. Even as we age, yes. we can improve. Yes, that's yes, right. Yes, it's not that, too late. It's, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. So um, uh, I'm going I'm we're going to take a break for just a moment, Ben. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Susan Moon. Um, she is a writer and teaches writing workshops, as I said earlier, mostly in California. And she is the author of the bestseller cult classic, um, The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi. And she has also written Not Turning Away, The Practice of Engaged Buddhism, and the book, This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. And if you'd like to be in touch with her, her website is susanmoon.wordpress.com. So that's, um, that's her website for you to be in touch with her. And the book is available at Shambhala Books. Uh, you can get them on, the webs- on their website, too, or at your local bookstore. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Susan Moon. She is the author of This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. And um, Susan, as we get older, many of us, if we haven't already faced it, are facing the death of our own parents. And in your case, your mother, and also in my case, my mother was about 20 years older than I was, and that was true in your case. Uh, So she's almost just a little bit ahead of, you know, couple of decades ahead, uh, and you face the death of your mother. Um, so maybe you want to tell a little bit about what that was like. Well, it was uh, very difficult and challenging. Uh, I was close to my mother, and uh, 
she was really enjoying her life very much. And it was particularly difficult because in her case, she died as a result of a car accident. She didn't die in the accident. She had injuries which put her into the hospital in intensive care. And so we were in a situation where we didn't know whether she would get better or not. And we were hoping she would get better. Um, so she had uh, she had a, a breathing tube down her throat. Uh, and she um, had always said she didn't ever want such a thing to keep her alive. So um, she had actually she had, had written, written she had written this a request to that effect, and she had spoken to us about that, and we knew it to be true. And she was she was taken to the hospital in an ambulance, and and she lived in Chicago. And my three siblings and I all lived on the east and west coast, so none of us were there. And by the time we got to her in the hospital, she was already in intensive care, already hooked up with the respirator, and. Um, we said to the doctor, well, she never wanted this. And the doctor said, well, you know, she, this is not like we're keeping her alive as a vegetable. She had an accident, and we're hoping she is going to get better. And then she'll be off the breathing tube, and she'll be able to continue with her life. So that was a very persuasive argument. and was not the situation that she herself had been describing as well when she said, don't put a tube down my throat. So we continued to allow that to be the situation. And it's a, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Here he is in the white coat, and we are, you know, we're trying to make this decision. And in the way that you describe it in the book, he, he just keeps this great hope going mm-hmm. for your mom and, and keeps convincing yes. you as you reach each mm-hmm. milestone of, of where he'd say, well, yeah. on this day, we will make this decision, but it just kept going on and on, didn't it? It did. And actually, I don't think, I don't fault him at all. I think he was very compassionate. And in fact, she was taken off the breathing tube after two weeks, and she seemed to be all right. So we thought, hooray, this is good. We did it. And then she began to fail again, and it became apparent that she was not going to live unless she had a tracheotomy, a more long-term help with her breathing. So it was at that point that we made the decision, with a little help from her, not to put the tube back in her throat. And so she couldn't even speak when the tube was in her throat. No, she couldn't say anything when the tube was in her throat after it was taken out. She could, and so we thought, okay, now we see that she's really not going to make it without it after all. This is very disappointing. We can ask her now, even though she already wrote her instructions, we'll ask her. She, people change their minds, you know. So, so that was a very intense moment when we asked her. And she took a, my sister asked her a couple of times, about three times, and she didn't respond at all. And then the doctor who had come in for this conversation, the palliative care doctor asked her again, asked her if, if we don't, give you a breathing tube again, um, you probably will not survive. You will probably die. How do you feel about that? And she sort of sat up in bed all of a sudden, kind of angry, and said um, a word I can't say on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And then she said, this is a terrible time to ask me a question like this. And... um, 
And then she said, I've already spoken to my children about these things. So we understood that answer to be, you know, I already told you I don't want a breathing tube. Why are you asking me all over again, putting me on the spot here? That's what I think she meant. You know, Susan, that, that's so similar to my own story with my mother, uh, who was battling cancer. And, and she, she wanted to go into the hospital one last time for one, one chemotherapy. And, and it was pretty hopeless by that time. And she had always told us, although it, she died in 79, so it, it, she, she had, didn't have mm. a little, living will, but she did say, do not leave me hooked up. She told all of us very clearly, do not leave me hooked up. And so I took it upon myself to go down. Uh, she was in Monterey at the time and uh, to to really unhook her to, mm. and, or to give her the opportunity. And in doing so, I walked into her room and um, she she was conscious and she perked up and she looked at me and smiled. And, and then she frowned and said, what's wrong? You know, like, and uh, that's when I I said to her, um, "Mother, it's time for to go home, and if you go home, we we will be unhooking you from all of this, and this all may be saving your life." And um, she said to me, just like with your mother, they had to hear the question several times. She said, "I can't hear you." Mm-hmm. And then I had to say it again. And then she said, now you're speaking too loud. And then the last time uh, I, I finally got up my nerve to say it the third time. And it was almost like a fairy tale, like things mm-hmm. come in three. Yeah, yeah. And I said it the third time, and she paused and then suddenly she sat up, she threw the covers back. And she flipped her legs off of the bed, and she said, let's go. And um, I had to say, wait, wait, we have to make arrangements. <laughs> you know? But but it yeah. took her that time to process. And mm-hmm. and it is something once once the words are said out loud, they're not, they're not some vague concept. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's now uh, in the next stage of reality, so to speak. And... Um, you know, but our loved ones are are able to to cope with that. I think. Yes. I mean, we we need to give them credit for yes. that. That's a beautiful story, and I think what also I appreciate appreciate about your story is that, as you said, you got up the nerve to ask her again. It takes a lot of courage on the part of the rest of us who it takes nerve to decide unhook me, I'm ready to die. But it also takes nerve to have those conversations, and I think a lot of people avoid the conversations because they're very scary, and. I think that's that's one part of getting older myself, that those kinds of conversations will be coming up more and more with people I know. Maybe my fr- I want my friends, my relatives to have those conversations with me. You know, I don't want people to be afraid, and I myself don't want to be afraid to ask those questions and to talk about those things. And you were able to be there then with your mother in her dying, in her last breaths, mm-hmm. and, and it wasn't a terrible thing, was it? I mean, the way no. that you describe it... it it was. It wasn't terrible. It was very sad because it was. It, even though she was 84 when she died, it did seem like it was coming too soon. She had more things she wanted to do. She was in the middle of projects. You know, it wasn't quite her time yet. But it turned out it was her time, and and we. I was very grateful to be there along with siblings and of mine, and a number of her grandchildren were there. 
I know with for me, I, I talked to the doctor before I got to the hospital really early while he was doing his rounds and talked to him ahead of time. And I asked him if if what she was hooked up to was pretty minimal, was that uh, sustaining her life. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, no. He said, not at all. And then I said, okay, so if we take her off the breathing machine or if we you know take the oxygen away, then then she'll be able to survive on her own. And he said, Oh, no, 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 she would die. And so, you know, it was like, and I said, well, then it's time for her to Mm -hmm. come home. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was like, well, if she goes home, she'll die. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I could think to say to him, Susan, was, well, um, Dr. So-and-so, people have been coping with the death of their loved ones in their family for many centuries mm-hmm. now. That's what I yes. said to him because I just, uh, but, you know, doctors are so uh, educated to mm-hmm. for, for life, to save life. And, and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard in that hospital situation. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's getting easier now. Maybe there's more recognition that there there's more support now, in, even in a hospital situation for for death. Yes, I hope that's true. And more hospice care is available. Right, right, right. So um, let's let's go on to changing relationships. That that part of your book, um, you first of all, you you talk about if if especially women, especially women, become. Um, Number one, kind of invisible as as we as I, we get gray headed. I I think you wrote um, something about that. You you said um, I can't blame the sexist, ageist culture for my wrinkles, but it's not the wrinkles themselves that hurt. It's the meaning they are given, a meaning that is mostly unconscious and unspoken. Gray hair shrouds you in fog. Uh, and you even talk about there was one time when you when you dyed your hair red, and so, and I, your book is very funny as well as poignant. So I just want to point that out to the listeners. I mean, I laughed out loud in so many parts of it. So, so talk about your red hair, your experiment with red hair. Well, I, I've always done odd things to my hair over the years, actually, but I haven't anymore for a while. After my hair was pretty getting pretty gray, I thought, oh, well, just for the heck of it and for some fun, I'll dye it red. And I wasn't ever a redhead, so I wasn't expecting to fool anybody. But I did definitely notice, to my surprise, that I was much less invisible. I was more visible. Walking down the street, going into the post office, um, people, I could see that people saw me, people looked me in the eye, people... Um, waited on me in line. I, I just didn't disappear, and I didn't. I wasn't translucent the way older gray-haired women tend to be. It was surprising to me um, how distinct the difference was. I have to confess to our listeners. Recently, I tried an experiment. I saw a woman with these just these kind of shiny things in her hair. And I have gray hair like you, uh, and it's pretty short. And I had these five. Uh, strands of they're called shimmers put in my hair and and i thought well you know i may be invisible but once in a while a light will catch one of these shimmers and it'll cause someone to kind of turn their head and say what was that and 
I, I, it was just my my sense of kind of railing against the uh, the invisibility. And how did it work out? Oh uh, well, it? I you know I, I don't know. It's pretty new. I mean, well, my women Maybe friends, men were picking you up on the street, and you got all kinds of new job offers. <laughs> Not quite, but my women friends enjoy it. Yeah. So uh, that's well, it's been, good to play yeah. and take things lightly too, like this. I mean, I think that's great. You know, I do too. Uh, what about you? Talk about loneliness. Let's talk about, um, we'll, when we get back, we'll talk about loneliness. I'm here with Susan Moon. She's the author of This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. And to be in touch with her, you can go to her website, susanmoon.wordpress.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Susan Moon. We're talking about aging, and um, I we we're about to talk about uh, being lonely. And I I'd love to talk about friendship at this point. Um, that old friends become more and more precious to us. Um, there, uh, you you even say childhood friends keep me connected to the whole narrative of my life. What what do you mean by that? Well, I think as you get older, it's hard to really believe that you were the same person as the little girl who rode a tricycle or learned to juggle with crab apples in a backyard. And it's so important to have people who shared your childhood uh, and to be able to know they're witnesses to your life and your witnesses to theirs. And in some sense, I do feel that we we don't. Our lives don't belong just to us. They belong to our friends and our relatives with whom we've shared them. And one of the things about getting older is that these friendships become extremely precious, more and more precious. And it's also the case that they die. These friends die. And so there is a loneliness to that, too. And in fact, recently, a, a very close friend of my mother's just died who and I realized it's just about the last of that generation of my mother's friends who were and and aunts and uncles and cousins and people who <clears throat> knew me when I was a child are almost all gone and so it's only my own contemporaries my own friends now who shared my childhood but there's virtually nobody left who was there when I was born, who knew me when I was an infant. Right, right. And that, that is a big transition. Your mother in Chicago uh, had a wonderful uh, group of women. They, were, they call themselves mothers of daughters. And whenever any daughter would come into town, uh, they would get together. So describe that circle for us. It was such a precious circle. Yes, my mother lived in a retirement community in Chicago. And so... When I came from California to visit, she would have her friends come over and meet me, and we talked together, and I got to know the mothers of daughters, and as she called them, because there were seven of them, and they all had daughters who lived far away, and the daughters 
when the daughters came, the mothers would all honor each other's daughters. And actually, I got to know some of the daughters as well, which was kind of a nice little community, uh, if they happened to be there at the same time as me. But she had a very close circle of friends in her retirement community, the building that she lived in in Chicago. And these women really supported each other's other women who were also not the mothers of daughters were her dear friends there. I would love for you to read something um, um, from your book that when when you look at old women from the outside, if you would read that that paragraph for us. Well, this was, yes, this was a thought I had as I was visiting her. When you look at old women from the outside, not identifying with them, you don't think how lonely they might be or how much patience it takes to get the walker in and out of the elevator. You forget that they didn't used to be like that, that they used to go canoeing in the Minnesota woods or waltz until the wee hours, that they knew another kind of life outside this building. You think they came into the world wrinkled and deaf. It's 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 so wonderful to to look at our lives and how deep and how how much experience is built up, and that we're not always when we look at each other. And you go on to um to talk about um that circle and and especially Betty. I, I loved Betty when you told her um, your mother said that you were a Zen practitioner, and and I I know Betty was so great. She was like in her 90s and and uh, she said, um, I'll quote you, I hear you were just on a long Zen meditation retreat. Did it make you calm? <laughs> I mean, she goes right to, and then she goes on to say, well, I can see that I don't need Zen meditation. Getting old forces you to let go of one damn thing after another. <laughs> you know, Betty was wonderful. Yes. Uh, she she was quite a character. And 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 you maybe you could read a little snippet of of that circle in the the women. Okay. As the women talked and laughed, as they passed around the bowl of crackers with shaky hands, I studied them. I saw how they paid attention to each other. They were accomplished people, scholars, artists, social workers, poets, raisers of families. Now, in old age, they were accomplishing friendship, accomplishing community. So poignant and so beautiful when you can really see the vibrancy of these women in their, even beyond their shaky hands and passing around in the crackers or walking down the hall and you have to walk more slowly. I I remember uh, being in a grocery line one time and um, it was like that, that express checkout. Yes. And I noticed that the line kind of came to a stop and uh, there was an older gray-headed woman in the line, and she had many, many, many more groceries than 10. Uh, and the young man who was checking her out, he couldn't have been, he must have been in his 20s. He wasn't, he wasn't, uh, didn't have a whole lot of age on him. And he was just patiently, che- he didn't admonish her, he just checked out all these, and he called someone over to bag them. And then uh, she took a long time to write out a check. She didn't have like a debit card or a credit card or anything. She had to write it out and she didn't have it ready in her, out mm-hmm. of her purse. So she had to take it out and we're all standing there. And, um, and this young man is just being so delightfully mm-hmm. patient with her. And then he asked her, um, he said, do you have help 
um, someone picking you up? And she said, yes. And he said, well, uh, my assistant here, he will take you out to the curb where, where you can meet your ride. And and then she slowly like got out of line and, and left. And then it was my turn to come uh-huh. up. And he looks up at me and he says, you know, we will all be there someday. Wow. That's a wonderful understanding from a young person. It was astounding. Mm-hmm. I and I it just it took my breath away that this young mm-hmm. man had such an appreciation and mm-hmm. respect. That's really great. Respect for this elderly woman that mm-hmm. didn't follow all the protocol. Yes. And yes. Uh, so it gave me yeah. hope. <laughs> well, I want to say also that I have found young people to be very respectful, more than I would have expected. And I, I appreciate so much the kindness and interest and curiosity of young people. I feel that young people are much more respectful and related to me than I was when I was their age. Maybe it was the spirit of the times or something, or you know, in the 60s or whatever. I don't think I was that interested or respectful of older people. I was somewhat respectful, but... I'm grateful for young people like that young man at the checkout counter. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also for old people. I'm grateful for the really older people who are a lot older than I am. And I just want to put in a word to say that I'm not, I don't pretend to really know what the deep, deep losses of aging are yet because I'm fortunate to have my health and I'm still able to live the life I want to be living. I'm not really seriously limited at all. So, um, I I have so much respect for the older people, like my mother and her friends. I learn a lot from them and from their courage and from the way they do face their own losses and frailties. And I hope, I think it's a good time to start practicing now. I, and that's why I'm thinking about it now. I want to move forward with some courage and hope, but I really admire older people a lot. Yes, and I, that reminds me of, of the grandmother, uh, the, uh, the, the role of the grandmother. It's a very different role than the parents, and you have a, a young granddaughter, Paloma. And, yes. And that, how, what's, what's the difference between your relationship to her and your son's and daughter-in-law's relationship? Well, that's a very timely question, although you don't know it. But yesterday, I came back to California from spending a week with my granddaughter in San Antonio, Texas, where they live. And uh, they are actually moving. So I was helping them while I was helping while my son and daughter-in-law were packing up the house and putting dishes in boxes and everything. I was spending the time with my granddaughter to give them the time to pack. And my relationship with her is just totally indulgent. You know, I feel I have license to indulge her. She, I just did whatever she wanted me to do. She bossed me around, not in a bossy way, but told me what game we were going to play next, what book we were going to read. And then when it was time for a little authority and time to go to bed and do something she maybe didn't want to do right then, her parents had to step in and do that hard part. But I got to do the fun part of just um, really indulging her and Watching, uh, we watched one more uh, little video on the TV than we were really supposed to watch, <laughs> and we didn't tell her parents, but it was a very educational one. <laughs> anyway, it was so great to be able to just have that kind of relationship with her and, and made her, she's so affectionate with me, and I think she thinks I'm a great playmate because I'm so willing. 
And then that's another that's that's another kind of touching that if we're partnerless, if we don't have a mate that we're living with, and and to have that precious child yes. crawl in your lap or or, mm-hmm. or take your hand. Mm-hmm. What a thrill for a youngster that first moment yeah. that she takes your hand, trusting yes. you. Yes, that's a very precious moment. It is very precious. You you write about um, vertical time and um, horizontal time, and you you mentioned something about Paloma, who at the time that you wrote the book was three years old, and you say threeness was in me too, and you say I can't be more than I can't be in more than one place at a time, but I can be in more than one time in the same place. And uh, that's a, that's a wonderful because inside we can be all these ages, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you you uh, you really talk about that so so well, and especially being with younger people, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. they're very very precious. So you also share your house. Yes, you, I do. You call it the ha- uh, house of commons uh, because you've had people come and live with you and move on and yes. And uh, what, in what state are you now? It's well, I'm still sharing my house. There are three young people living there with me, renting rooms in the house. And um, sometimes they've been my contemporaries or a sister. Um, I've always shared the house with other people. And um, it's working out pretty well. I, I don't really want to live alone, and I enjoy being with other people. And these are not people, actually, they're all people I know through family um, or have known for a long time. So they're not strangers. They're not somebody who answered an ad on Craigslist, although I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. But these people feel like extended family. We have dinners together sometimes, Mm -hmm. and they enrich my life. And um, I'm a kind of a house mother in a way at the moment. It's a little bit like... Auntie Sue's youth hostel right now, but mm-hmm. they're very they're great people. One's a musician, and um, one of them has done a lot to help me with computer website things, and and I really enjoy them. And we cook together sometimes, and but we also are living our independent lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm here with Susan Moon. She's the author of This Is Getting Old: Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. And if you'd like to be in touch with the work that uh, Susan does, she um, gives writing workshops uh, mostly in California. Uh, you might can check that out, or um, you can so you can go to her website susanmoon.wordpress.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Susan Moon, author of This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. Go to her website, susanmoon.wordpress.com, or New Dimensions website. You can get there through that, newdimensions.org. Susan, uh, you, I want to talk about a couple of things. One, um, you went on a retreat uh, not too long ago, and it was uh, in a, the, actually the hills of Mendocino County, and uh, without electricity, it was a real rustic retreat. Uh, tell us about that time. Well, I spent a month in a cabin, um, and it was my vow not to talk to anybody for a month or have any interactions with other human beings. Um, and it was very intense and challenging, and part of the reason I did it was because I'm kind of afraid of being too much alone, and I really wanted to learn to appreciate solitude and learn to be more at home with my own company without anybody else around. And I think I, I did learn something about that, and it was I'm very glad I did it. It was a wonderful experience. But at one point, there was a forest fire, which I um, realized as I was doing some yoga on the porch, and I looked down into the valley, and I saw this smoke, and I was quite concerned um, that the fire could race up the mountain that I was on. I was thinking, why are all these planes going around? It's so peaceful here. And then I looked around and I realized that the reason they were there was because there was a fire. When I saw the smoke, I realized that's what the planes were doing there. And then I thought, I better get out of here because this, I'm a sitting duck if the fire comes up the hill. And I couldn't ter- tell exactly where it was. So I went to start the car and drive down the dirt road to the bottom of the mountain, uh, which is about two miles. But um, the battery was dead. And the reason the battery was dead was that I had been using it occasionally to charge up my laptop. (laughs) And every once in a while, I would start the car and run the engine for a little while to charge the battery back up. But I hadn't done it recently enough, so I was horrified. I thought, all right, I better just walk. So I walked down the road thinking my relatives are going to be so mad at me if I die in a forest fire because I ran down the battery of my car charging up my laptop. And I got down to the bottom of the road, and I found some neighbors, and I realized that the fire wasn't in that particular valley. It was on the other side of another ridge, so I was safe. And I um, then I asked these neighbors if they would drive up the road and give me a jump start on the car. And they were sitting around drinking beer, and I, they said, yes, they would. And eventually, um, this one guy took me up in his truck and started the car. But you, you pointed out that it did take a little while that he said yes, and then you're just kind of sitting there, and right. they're talking on and on. That's right. It was very un, un, very different than, like, if you had asked someone in Berkeley yes. if they would, well, well what, how it was, was it? Well, I would say it was, it was country time. It was not Mendocino time. They were just sitting around looking at the hummingbirds and drinking beer, and it was an after, weekday afternoon, and they weren't doing anything important, but they just kept on talking for... I don't know, at least a half an hour probably. And and then I I didn't say hurry up. I was, beggars can't be choosers. And I thought, well, this is kind of pleasant. And then finally I did get the ride. Can you read um, a little bit from, from that for yes, us? Yes, yes. So this fire um, 
And the story I just told you, I say, it was a humbling experience. I had been feeling so proud of myself for being a pioneer woman taking care of herself in the wilderness. I had been annoyed with the plains, those manifestations of technological pollution. Then suddenly everything flipped, and I realized that even there, on retreat in the woods, I was completely woven into the tapestry of human society. I was grateful that the forestry department had planes to put out forest fires and that there were friendly people at the bottom of the road who could give me a jump start. And I saw that my whole retreat was resting on a foundation of human goodwill and human society. <laughs> so, and we are all connected in, in some way. Tell me a little bit about what your spiritual practice is these days. What, what, how well, do you I, practice these days? I'm a Zen practitioner. I belong to a sangha or community uh, in the Bay Area. It's called Everyday Zen, and my teacher is Norman Fisher. Uh, that community has branches in other areas as well, but I practice in Marin County, and I'm a teacher in that tradition as well. Sometimes I lead retreats and give classes, and... It's a very important to me that sangha or that family of practitioners is, is really a wonderful support for me and makes me feel at home with, with people also. There is something very, very sweet about having a group of people with whom you share your spiritual practice. It's really true. It, it is very sweet. And also, I think... Another thing about aging is that it's a good time. As, as I get older, it seems to me a good time to spend more time on, on my inner life when I can't journey outwards quite as much. I don't have the energy to be um, climbing up mountains, but I can journey inward, and it's a really good time for that. And so I appreciate the, the support and the sharing of that with my fellow Right. In fact, you you have in years past done a lot of backpacking mm-hmm. and hiking, and mm-hmm. and your sons actually took you on on a trip not to where they had to carry yes, your back. That's right. You know, yeah. so we have to accept that kind of help from others. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, so learning how to receive is a new thing. That's isn't true. It? Learning how to ask for help and learning how to receive it. And also learning how to let go graciously when you can't do something anymore. You know, I loved backpacking, but I really don't think I could carry a pack up at a high elevation, up a steep hill anymore. I just don't think I have the strength to do it, but, and my knees would probably not allow it. Um, but I can still enjoy walking in the country and mm-hmm. just keep on adapting to what the situation is. So we, we learn to find paths that are a little more flat, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. but still very, yeah. you know, very nice. You know. Yeah, and, and I, mean, I think that it's important to learn not to keep thinking about what it is that you can't do anymore, but instead think about what it is that you can do. And you can do some new things that you didn't do before. Maybe they're quieter, but for example, I'm learning Spanish and I didn't do that before. Or to, you know, really open where the doors open. How is that going, learning Spanish? Oh, goody, I'm I'm out of here. It's a lot harder to learn a language now than it was when I was younger. And I contrast it with my granddaughter, for example, who has learned two languages um, by the age of, Three, she was already pretty fluent in both English and Spanish, um, which is why I wanted to learn Spanish, because that was her first language. Her mother is Mexican. But 
it's a lot harder for me to learn Spanish than it is for her. But still, it's really fun to do. I can feel my brain being exercised, and I enjoy that my fellow students in the Berkeley Community College class, and I love being part of that community. Of, it's such a great resource to go to a school with all these people of all different ages, and that's the kind of thing I can totally enjoy as an older person. I laughed when I got to the part in the book uh, where you did hip-hop. Oh, yeah. You did a hip-hop <laughs> class because I did the same did thing. Did you really? And I had to move to the back of the class, too. I mean, here, this gray-headed old yeah, lady yeah, with yeah. all of these, you know, almost yeah, teenagers, yeah. you know, and having to remember mm-hmm. all these steps because yeah. hip-hop is, you've got this yeah. whole sequence of steps. Yes, it's quite mental as well as physical. Yeah. It is. It is. So I think Spanish might be a little bit easier. Yeah, now. it's more appropriate, I think, to, the, to my condition than right. hip-hop. Right, right, right. And um, how? And you also took up some photography for yes, a while. Yes, I've been doing a lot. I'm still doing that. I'm very serious about photography. I just love it. And I've actually had a couple of little shows and cafes and things like that. And it just is a wonderful practice of gratitude for me to see the world that's here already. And I feel all I have to do is lift up the camera to my eye and and the light is landing on all this beautiful universe that we have and I I get to see it and I'm just so grateful it it makes me it really helps me to be present in the moment and to feel grateful for beauty in unexpected places it's beautiful and and you you've been taking some courses in it mm-hmm. or or yes, that I just have. I've been taking some very challenging and serious courses at, again at Berkeley City College where they have a fantastic department and Huge printers. I've printed some enormous prints and so on. So that that's another key is to check into our local, mm-hmm. you know, community colleges. They mm-hmm. just are wealth. You know, I I would love for you to to go out with just a a little reading that you might share with us. Okay. Um, this is. I'm speaking about loneliness here, and then I say. The main thing is, I'm not separate. I only think I am. I'm one of the jewel-like nodes in Indra's net, that vast spider web of the universe. I'm not a thing at all. I'm an intersection where filaments connect. Pluck me out, and the whole thing falls apart, like a knitted shawl unraveling from one dropped stitch. The universe holds me, and the universe needs me. No way is the universe going to leave me for a younger woman." I'm learning to meet my most intimate needs without a significant other now. I keep a long-handled bamboo back-scratcher on my bedside table. I've named it My Husband. It's like having my cake and eating it, too. I'm getting those hard-to-reach places between the shoulder blades scratched without having to pick up anyone else's socks. (laughs) Very, very, very sweet. Very sweet. I've been speaking with Susan Moon. She is the author of This is Getting Old, Zen Thoughts on Aging with Humor and Dignity. She is also the author of The Life and Letters of Tofu Roshi, uh, which is uh, a a satirical cult classic. Uh, Anybody who has studied Zen has probably come across that book. And she, she was a former editor of Turning Wheel, the Journal of Socially Engaged Buddhism, And she um, also is the author of Not Turning Away, The Practice of Engaged Buddhism. 
And those those books are all available at Shambhala Press, and so you can go to the Shambhala website, or you can go to the New Dimensions website to get to her website, susanmoon.org, word, um, no, susanmoon.wordpress.com, or the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3374. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org, or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.